Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Brennan Spellacy to discuss the concept of carbon offsetting, along with the software that allows us to interact with it. It's fairly undisputable that as a society, our actions continue to emit far too many carbon dioxide emissions. And like many people, I feel we need a multi-pronged approach to moving forward looking at things holistically rather than getting tied up solely on numbers of carbon. But any move that takes us in the right direction, and can be put into action at scale, is a valuable part of the solution. Carbon offsetting is a means to direct finance from activities that emit carbon and put it into supporting projects that can instead store carbon here on Earth. So in other words, if a factory burns its way through fossil fuels, it can take some accountability for that by putting money into a project that's planting lots of trees or a carbon removal technology. It's a topic with broad scope and many challenges. And alongside mandated schemes, it's actually voluntary carbon markets that are helping to move things forward. In many ways, we all have a bit of an impact on this, though I for one have found it an inaccessible subject to really get my head around. Who is able to get involved? What scale of project can benefit? And how does it actually work from a day-to-day point of view? Brennan is able to help us unravel some of this. He's the co-founder and CEO of Patch, an online platform that joins the dots and streamlines the process for putting carbon offsetting into action. I hope you'll gain some valuable insights by having a listen. And don't forget to keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon. Subscribe over on the website, wearecarbon.earth, or find us on Instagram, at wearecarbon.earth. Right, let's get stuck in. Hello, Brennan. Thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, Really appreciate you being here, and I wonder if you could start by just giving a a very quick introduction to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, Helen, thank you so much for having me. As far as who I am, my name is Brennan Spellacy. I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Patch. Uh, Patch is an API that takes CO2 out of the air. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about what that is later. Uh, Before working at Patch, I was a software developer at Shopify and then a hospitality company called Sonder. And I was born and raised in New York. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you. And I, I have to admit, this is a topic that's I think technical, perhaps not just for myself, but maybe for a lot of other people, because we're not just talking software, we're talking carbon credits, which I think is, it's quite in itself, uh, I have personally found it quite a difficult topic to navigate. So um, I'm hoping you can break it down for us um, non-technical people and give us a bit of an understanding how software can play a part in essentially helping the health of the planet. So before we get into Patch itself, would you be able to give us a short overview of what the idea of offsetting carbon actually means? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when people talk about offsetting, which has admittedly become a slightly loaded word, they're talking about the idea of compensating for some sort of unavoidable emission. And so what I mean by that is when a company is trying to operate sustainably or maybe at net zero emissions, which essentially means they want to effectively have no environmental impact, the first thing you have to do is measure the carbon intensity of their business. So they understand you know, how many flights they're doing, how much they're consuming, maybe if they're generating electricity or consuming electricity, they kind of put all this work together 
to understand what is like the total footprint and breakdown of that footprint in the business. The second step is to take reduction opportunities. So, you know, maybe you can fly a little bit less or, you know, replace um, incandescent bulbs with LED bulbs. There's all these different ways to either decarbonize or use less power, which in effect reduces your footprint. And then the final piece um, is compensation. So we've kind of made an made an effort to condense your, your footprint or compress your footprint. And uh, now you have a certain amount remaining. That's the piece that should be getting offset. Now, how does that actually happen? Well, an offset is actually a almost like an abstraction or an environmental derivative where it's this digital record that maps to some sort of physical event that happened somewhere else. And so offsets or carbon credits are ways for people who are maybe further away from some sort of carbon sequestration or carbon uh, offset project to interact with these different things. And when you essentially buy and retire an offset, you're essentially financing some sort of positive environmental project somewhere in the world. Now, those environmental projects themselves, the way offsets even come to be, um, really comes through the development of land in a way that has some sort of positive environmental benefit. So there's two major types of offsets. There's the idea of avoiding emissions. So there was some sort of an emission event that was going to take place. Um, maybe there's a coal plant that is kind of getting displaced by some sort of renewable energy. Uh, maybe there is a landfill that is emitting methane that is getting captured and destroyed. Um, there's all these different forms of avoiding emissions. And then the second bucket is removal offsets or removal credits, which is the idea where um, baseline is nothing happening. And then you develop land in a way such that it draws CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that can be something as familiar as reforestation or as foreign as director carbon capture, which are these large fans that suck CO2 out of the air, pull the CO2 out of the ambient air through a chemical process, and then store that CO2 somewhere under the ground. And so both of these are forms of offsets. And when you an offset gets created, one of these land developments is produced. They bring in what is called a verifier, which essentially audits that work. And that verifier says, hey, you've sequestered a thousand tons with this new piece of land. Therefore, you get a thousand credits that you can sell to someone. Um, and then Patch is essentially the platform on which it transacts on, but you can essentially buy and retire those credits. So you're essentially paying for indirectly paying for some sort of positive environmental effect somewhere. So I'll pause there. I know it was a bit long, so we can we can riff off that. No, that was very, very well explained. Um really broad subject and essentially totally. um you're encapsulating all these different people, all these different industries, and you're bringing them together in a platform that allows them to interact in a beneficial way. So the software side of it, do, from a sort of customer point of view, is this very technical stuff? Is this only for technical people? Yeah, absolutely. So for the most part, Patch is primarily selling speaking about this in the software world to businesses. So there's like a certain level of sophistication that you need to understand carbon markets or software a little bit to even begin accessing. And businesses typically have um, kind of that level of, of understanding or that knowledge. Now, the intent of Patch is to make it as simple as possible where you don't have to be incredibly deeply technical on the carbon market side, where we'll aggregate and standardize all this information inside of our product. And we additionally have educational material both in the product as well as in our blog, where people can actually learn how carbon markets work, why one ton of CO2 might be worth $10 versus another might be worth 100 
understanding like why are those price differences there um, and kind of actually having this visual kind of aggregated interface in which you can transact. Very similar to what Airbnb did for home sharing, Patch is doing for carbon markets where it's aggregating, standardizing and ensuring the quality of the information in a given ecosystem. There is one component that is technical though, which is the API piece. Um, for those who don't know, APIs are essentially how computers talk to one another. And so we've developed an API as well so that other software applications like banking applications, e-commerce platforms, logistics systems can talk to Patch such that if you know understand the carbon footprint, uh, a credit card transaction or maybe an NFT, uh, you can actually push that value into Patch using our API and actually put the carbon compensation piece on autopilot, as you like to say. So every time you transact or participate in commerce, any sort of negative environmental externality associated with that transaction is compensated for you programmatically. That's the world Patch is building for. That being said, you don't have to use that piece, um, but the, that is why a lot of companies come to us. Yeah. Yeah, so it's streamlining the whole process, really, because it is um, it is very broad. And at the end of the day, it's also people are quite detached from the if you're offsetting, you might be one side of the world and the benefit is happening the other side of the world. Yeah. So there's a lot of interaction and connectivity that's needed to take place in regards to the buying side, because mm -hmm. there's several sides of the platform. Who is the typical buyer? So we actually have a really large surface area of businesses in which we sell to. So at the highest level, we're only selling to businesses. So you need to work work at a company, and ideally a software-enabled or tech-enabled company. Um, so we're very rarely selling to, say, like law firms or, um, you know, dog walkers or things like this. Or like the types of business we're primarily selling to, they usually have, you know, anywhere from 20 to 10,000 people, which is a huge range, but the core is still software in the business. So we're sometimes selling to small technology startups, and sometimes we're selling to some of the largest tech companies that everyone kind of in the world knows. Um, now within those organizations, depending on the maturity of the organization, sometimes you're selling and kind of working directly with the CEO of that organization where they said, hey, we're gonna mandate that a particular um, you know, environmental goal is actually getting hit by a certain amount of time. Sometimes you're selling to a VP of product or a VP of engineering at tech companies. These are essentially the people that decide what software gets built and how they may decide, hey, we're going to have a specific sustainability feature built into the product because our users want it. And sometimes you're headed, selling to a head of sustainability where their whole job is to decide how that organization is going to operate sustainably. Uh, their role typically spans not just environmental sustainability, but typically social and, and a few other kind of aspects. But, you know, it's usually people, place and planet for a head of sustainability. So this is just one component of their broader role. And in some cases, you're actually selling to them. So it really depends. But the kind of overall theme is tech enabled businesses across financial services, e-commerce, logistics and travel. Um, but then within that organization, it really depends on the maturity of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So in terms of the motivation for a company to decide to start buying carbon credits and to start putting this um, software into place, what does that tend to look like? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are some organizations, and these are the really early adopters that believe that this is just the right thing to do as, as, as an organization. You know, you're participating in the global economy, you're benefiting from, you know, 
a healthy planet, a healthy ecosystem. And as a result, you want to work to maintain that. Uh, that's like the minority, candidly, of, of people buying from past to do that. The majority of them are doing it really to appease potentially three groups of people. First is their actual customers. So more and more, um, you know, millennials are entering essentially their prime earning years, as well as Gen Z is just beginning to vote and to spend in a serious way. These are the first two generations that are going to be materially impacted by climate change. And so they are demanding that brands or the companies they interact with to operate sustainably, as well as other social issues. But this is kind of one big piece on the docket. So first and foremost is consumers are threatening to walk, if you will, if they don't um, kind of uh, do what the companies say they want. And one of those things is to operate sustainably. The second is investor pressure. So even if a company doesn't actually view this macro movement, investors actually understand what consumers want. And there are many situations where Patch, um, you know, one of Patch's customers is EQT, which is a really large private equity fund. And they've invested $60 billion across a really wide variety of uh, software businesses. And they're actually working with each one of their portfolio companies to operate and get to a more sustainable world because they know that consumers are going to want this in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And if you're a capital allocator and maybe you're investing on a five or 10 year time horizon, you want to make sure you're doing what consumers want today so that you have a good financial outcome down the line. Uh, and then finally, there is regulatory pressure. So there are some organizations specifically in the travel space that are kind of being threatened by regulatory pressure. And so people are beginning to take steps in kind of operating more sustainably in good faith, such that maybe the regulation is less strict or less stringent. So there are not people actively being regulated today, but it's the regulatory risk that really concerns a lot of organizations. And so really at the foundation, it's still consumers kind of pushing these organizations and investor pressure and regulatory pressure are really just lagging indicators of what consumers want, right? Because consumers decide how money gets spent and therefore that dictates investor behavior as well as consumers vote and that dictates regulator pressure. Um, so it really kind of starts at the bottom with, with consumers. Yeah, so actually the buyer has more power than they perhaps realize. And that idea that people are, yeah, they're, it's adding up, it's building up. So for example, if I had a fashion website, I was selling clothes, there was some sort of pressure from the customer themselves that, well, we, we want to come to your brand because it's sustainable. This would be the sort of business that might be wanting to access your API or your software. Yeah. And essentially what the company is doing is making an, a sort of a branded effort on their website to say, look, we are doing a good job here. We are making a decision to offset our, our carbon and we want you to know about that. So would a customer of your customers recognize on the website that this is all taking place? If, if our customers want that. So the way Patch is built, it's built for flexibility, where you can make as like an incredibly sophisticated set of features or marketing campaigns or something that's incredibly simple that is not user facing at all. And so it really depends on what type of company you are and what your customers respond best to to figure out what needs to be built. Um, so some people will just you know do a bulk purchase on Patch and do a press release, and that's actually all of kind of the amount of marketing they'll do. Other people will actually have like at checkout every single time, like the associated footprint and the associated offset transaction and how that transaction is being offset, whether it's a 
staff facility in Canada or enhanced weathering facility in London. Um, we have kind of a really large global footprint. And so there are some people actually saying, based on where the consumer is, choose the nearest geographic project um, to offset with. And so that actually like, makes it like much more custom to that given user. So they're actually kind of feeling like, oh, wait, my money's not going halfway around the world. It's just, you know, I live in London. It's just going to Glasgow or something like that. And that feels a little bit more tangible. It's staying in my neck of the woods, if you will. Um, and so depending on what you want to do, you can do all those things. And so we've seen a really wide variety of levels of engagement and information sharing with the end user. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if I was going back to the example and I had a company, I've got um, a desire to impress sort of from a PR point of view, the audience, the customers, the buyers, um, that we're taking it seriously. We're making a step to improve our carbon footprint and we come to you and we want to use the software. Do we need an accurate understanding of what our carbon footprint is to match that with the software and the involvement or can it just be a sort of loose understanding? Yeah, so you technically can use patch however you want. I think the biggest piece is gonna go down to where do you wanna communicate with your end users? And so if you want to communicate with your end users, like we are carbon neutral and we know exactly what our carbon footprint is and we're taking, you know, steps one, two, three to reduce our footprint and offsetting with patch. Um, if you want to make a really robust, strict claim like that, then you need to have better granularity um, on your carbon footprint. The way you can do that is sometimes you can use patch. So we actually have a series of APIs, not in addition to the offsetting piece to actually estimate the carbon intensity of a given transaction. Um, that being said, there are some things that are very difficult to estimate that we don't estimate today, like product SKUs, for example. So if you're in the fashion example, we don't know where the fabric came from or where it was manufactured or the associated shipping that was necessary to get something from uh, the raw materials from maybe India or Taiwan or China over to if your boutique is in Paris, you know, what that associated air freight is. Um, and so because you don't have that information, it's very hard to footprint the embedded carbon of products, but things like shipping, um, we actually do a lot of things with crypto because that data is really readily available, logistics, air travel, freight, um, those things are very easy for us to do. And so sometimes we'll use our footprint in information or sometimes you'll actually have a separate audit performed by a consultant where there are some organizations where they actually bring in auditors to evaluate their supply chain and say, hey, on average, it costs 15 kilos of CO2 to produce this one type of shoe. And so assuming your supply chain doesn't dramatically change, this is a reasonable estimate to go with. And maybe you might add a 10% buffer to kind of make sure you're not undercompensating. Um, that's going to piece number one. The second piece is if you want to make a looser claim or maybe just a contribution, there are some people saying, hey, on average, you can offset your entire footprint for like one or 2% of spend on a credit card. We're not saying you're carbon neutral, but that's the amount that we're going to allocate to carbon removal. So if you spend $100, we're allocating $2. Um, and we'll just have that built in. And so you won't might, you might not be able to make, necessarily make a carbon neutrality or net zero claim, but you can still say, hey, we're really putting our kind of taking the right a step in the right direction. Um, and as we wait for a more rigorous carbon footprinting exercise. Yeah, because I imagine this stuff can go on and on in all directions. And it's exactly. very, yeah, just vast and challenging. So if we look at the other side of things and we go to the people that are selling mm -hmm. the carbon um, credits themselves. So 
how varied are these projects? Do you involve, do you get involved with a huge variety or is there a specific topics that you look out for? Yeah, we actually have a, a huge variety on the platform. And that's kind of one of the greatest pieces of value for buyers, which is you can have access to uh, essentially the broadest range of different technology types and geographies all in one platform, where you can have something at incredibly affordable um, related to some sort of a nature-based solution, like um, uh, like some sort of reforestation project, um, or maybe a blue carbon project at like five or ten dollars a ton. So you know, a bio oil geo sequestration facility in Kansas that's cost six hundred dollars a ton. And so when we're looking for um, different forms of projects on on board to the platform, there's like a certain like minimum threshold we actually need where per technology type. You have to be able to present us with specific types of information and data in order to actually say, hey, you're a, a, a reputable party that can operate on the platform. You can kind of think of this as like a KYC process where essentially evaluating an organization to see, you know, do they have a history of doing what they say they're going to do? And will do we believe that they will continue to do that? If they pass that threshold, they actually can list it onto the platform. That doesn't mean they'll necessarily inventory because if they're not competitively priced or maybe their project is good but not good enough for specific users people won't want to buy from them and so what's really great about patch and marketplaces in general is by getting matched against your peers it drives more competition which then as a result actually elevates the level of sophistication and rigor all of the suppliers in the ecosystem actually want to exhibit yeah. So in terms of the cost, you've mentioned quite a large variety between yeah. different companies on the different price of the carbon. What's influencing that? Is that the company choosing? And as you've just said, it's just they throw it into the marketplace and it's the competition that drives the price. Or is there something else? Yeah. So competition is is kind of one component um, and cost structure in general. But some bigger components are actually the underlying mechanics of a particular technology type. And so what I mean by that is there are some technology types that are um, more mature. And as a result, they've scaled more dramatically over the last two decades. So there are like things like reforestation, um, you know, they've been around for 20 years where, you know, people know how to operate that type of facility. They know how to kind of get the necessary labor in order to get that work done uh, and they know how to maintain it. And so as a result, that per unit cost and the, because the capital expenditure associated to develop a facility like that is much less expensive. And as a result, the capital they raise to develop that facility comes at a lower price as well because there's less risk associated with launching a facility like that. Um, the contrary is things like bio-oil I mentioned earlier come at $600 a ton. These facilities operate at like a hundredth of the scale the reforestation facilities operate at. And so as a result, they're much newer technologies. And so they haven't reached those scale economies yet. And so they're not able to benefit from cheaper capital um, and as a result, driving down um, unit cost rates as much. That being said, that more expensive option comes with other kind of metadata associated with it. So a really important attribute of um, carbon credits in general is this idea of permanence. So every ton is actually not created equal. Where a reforestation credit, you can really only assume um, carbon sequestered by some sort of nature-based solution will stay there for anywhere between 50 to 100 years. Um, which is good, like it buys us some time, but things like bio oil are permanent on the scale of 10,000 years. And so in that situation, you can assume that the carbon is effectively permanently removed in the uh, bio oil use case, but temporarily removed 
in the nature-based solution use case. And so there's a place and purpose for both, but the idea is like they're not actually truly like interchangeable because they're fundamentally different products underneath the hood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can see that. And the essentially if a company decides to spend a higher dollar for the same quantity of carbon, they they in themselves they've got their own motivation behind supporting that project, which yeah. Um, do they have all of that information available so they can see the sort of likely permanence and the location of the project they're supporting and they're choosing um, on all of this data? Exactly. Yeah. So we expose all that information, both in the visual products. So we have a dashboard where you can actually like filter and search and, and shop as well as all the data is also exposed by API. So if you maybe, you know, we actually have some customers for carbon accounting tools, which you can kind of think of a carbon accounting tool as an accounting system just for sustainability. So not for financial accounting, but for sustainability and carbon accounting, um, where they're actually embedding a marketplace inside of their product. And all of that is powered by patches infrastructure. And so they're enabling people to search by and query by all these different filters and attributes in their product powered by patches tech, which is pretty cool. So they've built like a mini patch inside of their product using our APIs. Yeah, fantastic. So it's kind of, it's creating a life of its own. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, in terms of the natural, we've talked about natural solutions for capturing carbon, and then there's um, more technical high-tech solutions. And on the, the basis of permanence, you've, you've covered um, a huge, huge variation in time, you know, 10,000 years, 100 years. It's, it's a huge leap ahead. Is there any consideration towards other benefits. Now, this I'm, I'm I'm expecting you to say no, but with regards to biodiversity, um, on the nature-based side, there can be like a a holistic and continuing benefit to the environment that is beyond the actual carbon in the atmosphere. Is any of that coming into play? Do companies like to mention that? So some companies definitely do, and that's one of the top. Besides cost, it's actually a huge driver of why people like contributing to um, to uh, to these nature-based projects. The other piece is actually social components as well, if you're thinking from like an equity and like uh, wealth distribution perspective. So a lot of these nature-based solution projects are based in, in kind of communities that maybe have historically been underserved. And so it's actually a great way to get capital into underserved or undercapitalized communities versus the human engineered solutions to date are primarily being developed um and like well essentially wealthy nations as like an engineering project and so you know a lot of times the kind of i don't want to say debate but some of the healthy tension relates to you know is the is your goal purely based on climate in which case it might make sense to store carbon for ten thousand plus years and really only think about that piece or you're also trying to fold in these other sustainable elements related to social and economic uh, sustainability that I was mentioning before. So a head of sustainability is not just responsible for climate, they're responsible for other attributes as well. And so this kind of this, there's a, creates a little bit of tension here where you have to weigh in the strengths and weaknesses of each solution. And we surface that metadata in the product as well. Yeah. And of course, there's a place for all of it in different ways, there's different benefits. So I imagine that the, the buyers are very um, supportive of having that choice and having that ability to see the information of where it's all coming from. Um, in terms of the validation process, mm -hmm. this is a complicated topic in itself, and it must be, you know, is that something that Patch are involved with 
if a company comes to you to sell carbon, do they go through a, verica- a verification process with yourselves? Yeah, so the like verification is essentially like, um, I don't say it's a protected term because it's not formally a protected term, but it means something very specific with respect to there's been some sort of verification standard and associated methodology, which is essentially a sequence of steps to evaluate a carbon project. We do not do that kind of verification. We believe that there's a fundamental conflict of interest if we are both an exchange as well as the verifier. It's almost as if like a securities exchange was also a credit rating agency. Like it's it's a huge conflict of interest because we benefit from volume moving through the platform versus verification standards. Their entire job is to make sure nothing beneath a certain bar can get on any platform. And so there's kind of this like this this moral problem. So we've structurally said we're never going to be a verifier. It's unethical. That being said, as a marketplace, we're still expected to do this KYC process I mentioned before. So we, while we are not a verifier, we still evaluate and ensure the data that's giving, being given to us is not fraudulent or misrepresentative of the underlying technology. Um, that being said, we additionally have kind of in a worst case scenario, legal and financial frameworks in place with all of our suppliers, where if something is misrepresented, if their verification lapses and they basically lose their stamp of approval and don't get a fix within a certain amount of time, they can be delisted and maybe not even get paid out for the inventory they've sold. And so although we're not a verifier, we are still playing this facilitator and making sure everyone's playing by the established roles that were laid out when people first got on the platform. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the process then to become a seller do they independently go to elsewhere to get verified and they you have a specific um, framework of information that you're looking for? Exactly. That's exactly it. So depending on your uh, verification standard and methodology, our data requirements are going to vary. Okay. Yeah. So I suppose you have to keep on your toes with it as well because there must be new stuff all the time. So... It doesn't change that fast, actually. And that's kind of been one of the critiques of the verification standards, which is there are all these new forms of carbon removal coming out into the ecosystem, and they've been unable to respond to them quickly enough. They've expressed intent that they're going to create methodologies for them because the market demand is there. Um, but they they are kind of, candidly, they're nonprofits. They're undercapitalized um, organizations, and they, they're being pushed, pushed to their limits, candidly. Um, and so I definitely empathize with them. That being said, they do have intent to create all these new methodologies eventually. So it doesn't change as fast. Uh, but that's more of a function of not so much the market, but rather the uh, the speed at which these organizations can move. Yeah, yeah. With the sellers, could you just give us some examples so we can get a picture of how varied they are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Some sellers, like there's BlueSource, for example, they are a carbon offset developer, primarily based in North America, and they primarily focus on improved forest management and prevented deforestation projects in Alaska and the kind of kind of primary 48 um, United States. Um, and so they're primarily working like Appalachia. They're working in um, I'm forgetting all of my forest names here, but there are a few in in, in the Massachusetts area as well as Alaska. Um, then you have folks like Future Forest. They're actually based in, in the UK. We're there, again, planting um, additional trees, but as well as using something called enhanced weathering, um, which essentially there's a specific type of mineral that reacts with the CO2. It's called olivine. And olivine reacts with CO2 in the air to create a what is called a carbonate. Um, 
which is a form of a salt. Not to get too technical, but essentially the carbonate will never turn back into CO2. Or if it were, you'd have to apply a huge amount of heat, which wouldn't happen naturally. And so by sprinkling all this olivine in this particular forest and kind of increasing the surface area in which the olivine can react with CO2, you're essentially sequestering CO2 as a, an inert rock, candidly, like it's basically a rock on the ground, uh, and it'll never re-enter the atmosphere. Um, so those are two very, very different projects on different, completely different parts of the world, um, and also coming at fairly different price points as well. It's uh, it's an education in itself, learning about it. It is. Your... I love it, yeah, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's so much diversity of, of, of solutions out there. I mean, there's also things like kelp forests, where people focus on, like, you know, there's land reforestation is the equivalent of that under underwater as well. And so there are people sequestering huge amounts of carbon dioxide by growing uh, essentially artificial kelp forests and then kind of dragging that kelp to the bottom of the ocean so that it can never re-enter the atmosphere. Yeah, okay. This is... Uh... It's for all environments. Yeah, so many different yeah, types. absolutely. Fantastic. And with regards to carbon credit schemes, this is a term that is generally covering government-mandated um, situations, but there's lots of variations. It just, just seems to be a huge number of projects out there. Do they overlap? And what happens if, um, you know, is a company that's, sequestering carbon covered by a non-mandated and a mandated um, scheme? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually very two very distinct markets. There are compliance markets. This is, these are those mandates you're talking about. Those typically come in the form of cap and trade schemes, where you're actually buying and selling the right to pollute, where you know uh, car companies each get issued a finite number of um, they're called emission credits. So the uh, not necessarily carbon credits, but emission credits. So you're allowed to emit one ton for every credit you have. And someone might be given 100,000 tons, 150, et cetera. And if you want to exceed that, you have to pay to get more. And so as a result, companies will actually sell credits to and from one another within a specific organization um, to kind of get the necessary amount of pollution capacity they need or don't need. Um, the world patch operates in or in voluntary markets where there is no regulating body, um, which is great because people can move quickly, but it's not great because it kind of causes a headache on what is and what isn't allowed. And so there's like some self-regulation that needs to happen. So, you know, lack of regulation is great from a speed and execution perspective, but it's not great at having really concrete clarity on what direction people should be going in. Those two markets are totally separated right now. Now, what's interesting is Canada, they recently upheld their... Um, carbon tax uh, two or three months ago. We went to the Supreme Court there and it was determined that it was constitutional to have a carbon tax in Canada. And they're actually uh, kind of ideating with the, we're playing with the idea of having a federal offset program. Well, they would actually, instead of the nonprofits having the verification standards, the, the Canadian government would actually establish the verification standards. And so that's actually a merging of these two worlds where it's a compliance scheme, but the, um, but it would be for an offset or carbon credit versus an emission credit, which is pretty interesting. I, from on top of my head, that's kind of first of first of the first of breed, if you will. Uh, and I anticipate things moving more and more in this direction, where it's going to be actually assumed that you should be always decreasing. There's no more paying for the right to pollute, but rather you were obligated to pay to undo what you've already done, and then as a result, you'll keep decreasing and decreasing your your pollution hypothetically. Yeah, because that's the limit of um, offsetting. It's not. It, it it's saying that well, I can still do something bad 
and then I'll offset it as opposed to, yeah, decreasing and just not bothering, um, not, you know, creating the emissions in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We like to say a ton avoided is, you know, twice as good as a ton emitted and then removed. So we really view ourselves as complements to sustainability teams where the idea of decarbonization or, you know, reducing the amount you're polluting is actually very specific where, you know, the way you would do that at a taxi business versus a hamburger shop versus an airline are fundamentally different. The supply chains are completely different and the strategies which you're going to employ as a result will be different. That being said, carbon compensation is actually highly aggregatable and outsourceable where, you know, the way you offset as an airline versus a hamburger shop, the projects you choose might be a little bit different, but the types of technologies you access, the rates which you want to pay, the technology you can actually use can all be the same. And so we like saying, if you have any headcount allocated to sustainability, focus 100% on decarbonization and don't waste any time standing up a carbon program. Use Patch to kind of handle that piece and really any internal headcount you can manage to rally for, from your CFO or CEO, spend it on polluting less versus finding out how to compensate better. Yeah, the two, I suppose, have to go hand in hand. Yeah, exactly. We're kind of past the point of, of no return where we can do one or the other. We actually have to do both incredibly aggressively over the next three decades. Yeah, this is um, bringing in the technology to to help um, bring all the efforts together. And it sounds it sounds like what you're doing can just it, it's going to keep growing. It's going to move fast. What is um, what do you think is the future for Patch? What are your plans? Yeah, absolutely. So it depends on the time scale you're operating on. Um, over the next 18, 24 months, um, you know, we've recently just raised a $20 million Series A. And so we're going to be using all of that capital primarily to um, continue maturing the product, as well as actually begin building out our partnerships team out in Europe. Um, we've been primarily focused on Canada and the US today. And now we're going to be getting pushing a little bit more internationally, a bit more aggressively. Um, and in the longer term, it's really to actually build software for our supply partners. You know, we've continued building them for our buy buyers um, and we'll continue to do so. Um, that being said, there's actually a huge amount of operational and informational complexity associated with scaling a business really, really rapidly. And we believe carbon markets are going to become anywhere between 50 to 100 times larger in the next two decades. That rapid expansion over such a small amount of time is going to come from with a huge amount of complexity that software is actually really well suited to address. And that's going to be what Patch spends a lot of its time on. Yeah. Yeah, I can believe it's going to move fast. It's it's certainly getting a lot of attention and it's... We have to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I really do appreciate it. You've helped me to understand. So I, I know that anyone listening is going to have wrapped their head around this complicated topic a bit easier and simpler for for your explanations. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Well, best of luck with everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. Next time, we'll be joined by Cade Frost to discuss bioplastics. With our ever-increasing use of plastics throughout the world, shifting to plant-based alternatives would have an enormous positive impact. In our talk, we consider the full picture of the challenges and the steps needed to put this into action. You can keep up to date with everything from We Are Carbon by subscribing on the website or following along on Instagram. Search for wearecarbon.earth. And let's keep figuring this all out together.